Hey, everybody. Andrew Krause, EventRite co-founder here. If you guys could type in yes to let me know that you can hear me, that would be great. Again, type in yes to let me know you can hear me so I'm not talking into space. Um, we're going to jump in here. So what we're going to talk about today, for those of you that have been here before, you already know this very, very well. We're going to be talking about licensing. And when you license your product to a large company, it's their money, it's their workforce, and it's their distribution. So you don't need to raise money. Don't need to hire employees. Don't need to try to convince some big retailer that you with your one product should get into their store, which they don't really want to deal with. They want to deal with larger companies that have a lot of products. Great. Thanks for typing in, guys. Um, so my name is Andrew Krauss. I co-founded EventRite 21 years ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago um, with Stephen Key. We've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. We're kind of the guys in the space. I like to think that after 21 years, I would hope we are. And we've had students in over 65 countries. So it's pretty cool. So let's jump in and answer some of your questions. Um, let's see. Uh, Deidre said, hi, Andrew. I designed my prototype. How can I find someone to make the workable product? Has, has it since December? They've shown it. Okay. She's talking about some invention promotion company. I'm not going to talk about companies by name, but no movement. Um, okay. Well, one of the things that we believe is that, and we know, is that it's really best to go direct to the companies that you want to license to. And I think a lot of inventors don't feel like they can do that. And that's really too bad because any of you guys can go direct to companies using LinkedIn, using the phone and using email. And it's easier than ever. We've been around 21 years. I mean, back in the day, you know, our students were having to mail stuff to companies. I mean, it's crazy. And then we progressed. I mean, this is back in the day. I, I saw a, a comment on one of our YouTube videos. I think it was one Stephen did about a guy saying he faxed the company. I'm like, does anybody have a fax machine anymore? That's so bizarre. But, you know, 21 years ago. Okay. And but I was so weird that I saw that comment today. I'm like, he faxed the company. But I could tell the dude was like, the dude is off. He was writing in all capitals, wasn't making any sense. So, okay. Um, so, uh, Deidre, okay, so why I designed my prototype. So why do you need a workable product? One of the things that we talk about is um, you're not selling a patent or a prototype. In this case, we're talking about the prototype. You're selling the benefit of your product. So if you do a marketing piece and you make the it really clear on how they're going to market it, who says you need a working product? Now, with that said, um, we were talking with our students the other day. It doesn't mean you're never going to build a prototype. It doesn't mean you're not going to go down the store and Frankenstein something and like duct tape together. And let's say it's a, a dog toy for your, um, we said another student license a dog toy um, for your dog. And you take an existing pro product and you duct tape it together. You change it a little bit and you throw and the dog's loving it. And you're like, oh, this verifies me to me that the dog is enjoying this. All right. And you might even show that in a video, but it's kind of at a distance and you're showing the dogs getting off on it and playing with it. And then you have uh, the picture of the product comes up and it's a virtual prototype, which is what we do for our students. And oh, that's, that's what the product's really going to look like. It looks beautiful, you know. So sometimes having a, a works-like prototype, but it doesn't look exactly how it will look like. So you got works-like and looks-like. The virtual prototype can be the looks-like. And a lot of times that's all you need because they look at it and go, oh, yeah, we can make that. And so that, But that's not always the case. Sometimes you need to build things. Um, but Deidre, don't 
just build stuff for the sake of building stuff or build stuff assuming that, oh, I can't license a product unless I have a prototype. No, that's not true at all. Um, and so sometimes our students will come on board with no prototype. We do a virtual and it's fairly obvious how this thing's going to be made. So why are they straining to make a prototype? Other times we'll do a virtual prototype, but then they'll have a crude prototype that may work or it may not. Like in, if you're doing a video of something and it only works one time out of 10, I'm just giving you an example for the mindset here, guys. It only works one time out of 10, but that's the time you film it. You're good to go. And it wasn't that the product, you would never want a product, an actual product to do that, right? It only works one time out of 10. But so I'm not saying that, but if it, if you can illustrate that it's working and they can see it working and you know they can make it, but you're having a hard time making it, it's okay to have something crude or sometimes nothing at all to go fishing and see if there's interest. So Deidre, um, you know, that's what I, that's what I would, I, I don't know your product. You know, when you have a coach, the coach will look at your product and say, Oh, let's do a virtual prototype for that. Or, you know, we kind of want to show it working somehow. Here's a one way we could do it, another way we could do it. Um, so it really depends on the product. So sometimes people think we're like anti-prototype and anti-patent. No, we're just about not blowing money on those things when it's not necessary. And with a lot of things with licensing, you know, I'll say, well, why'd you do that? Well, well, I have to have a prototype or I have to have a patent. I'm like, who told you that? And they're like, uh, well, they don't have an answer. Nobody told them that. Or somebody, actually, a lot of times people do tell them that, but you say, well, how many products have you licensed? Have you, have you brought products to market license? And they're like, no. It's like, why are you listening to them? So, um, so you don't always need a prototype, but sometimes you do. You know, if it's a highly technically complicated thing and your, your piece of it is not complicated, well, you don't need to know everything about that thing, but you need to know a little bit about your change. So, yes, yeah, sometimes our students are going out on a limb and they're, they're like 70% sure the company can do it, but they just want to see companies can do it. They want to see if there's interest first. So you don't want to go out and spend 5,000 on a prototype and you don't even know if anybody interested first. Now, I think that one of the misperceptions is, well, they're going to get mad at me. Like I show them this marketing piece has a virtual prototype in it and they go, well, you don't have a prototype. And it's like, I never see that happen, guys. And so sometimes you could work with them and they're like, well, you know, I think we got so enough to get some quotes, you know, to get this thing manufactured, maybe overseas or what have you. And we have enough information and that the deal just moves forward. That happens all the time. OK. Um, other times they're like, oh, I don't know how this thing's going to work. And, and you work with them. And when you suggest a few things, they're like, oh, yeah, it might work. Um, and you can work with them on it. And other times they're like, hey, you, you show me this thing working. But at least you got some interest now. Right. And so but even then. I, I will gauge, if I talk to one of our students, I will gauge like, well, based on what they're saying, that doesn't sound like they're really interested. It sounds like they're just challenging you, you know? And you could go out and spend five grand on a prototype, come back and go, here you go. And they're like, eh, you don't want to do that, right? Um, so you do not need to have a prototype to license a product. Do you sometimes need a prototype products? Of course. Um, do a lot of times you don't? Yes. There is no one rule, always prototype or always don't prototype. But um, Deidre, I don't know what your product is, so I can't say whether or not you need one. My guess is you probably don't, but I don't know for sure because it's it's that's the benefit of having a coach that can look at your product and guide you. Um, 
Okay. Kelly said, thanks for your help in advanced hook and loop and buckles are fasteners. Question. Okay. Thanks for your help in advance. Hook and loop and buckles are fasteners. I don't know what that means. But then it says, question. How about sewing thread? Is sewing thread also considered as a fastener? Okay. So she's kind of like talking about, I think she's writing a PPA or provisional patent. And so she's wanting to cover the different attachment mechanisms. And so, you know, um, you, you, yeah, yeah, I would say you could talk about how it's, and I'm assuming you didn't say this had to do with the patent, but you could talk about in a provisional patent, it, it could be sewn or Velcro could be used or any other attachment mechanism could connect these two pieces together and they could be connected and uncoupled and uncoupled or removed and dissembled actually with sewing it. Obviously that's not true. So you can talk about the different methods, but you don't want to get completely nuts with that, but you do want to, you can use specific language, but you can, and anything I share with you guys today is not, should not be considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney if you're looking for legal advice. That's my little disclaimer. Um, so I don't even know. She didn't say, I'm just, it sounds like some prior conversation we've had on some uh, YouTube video or something. And I think she's talking about her PPA and she's talking about um, can sewing thread also be considered a fastener? Yeah, it's a connection device. You don't have to, I don't think it's a fastener. It's the way of connecting these two pieces. But don't think in order to protect your idea, you need to cover like every possible variation on their sun. You can use, you could say it could be sewn or it could be connected with um, uh, hook and loop fastener, which is basically Velcro, it's generic version of Velcro. Because you don't want to use trademarks when you're writing a provisional patent or a patent. And you don't want to say Velcro, you want to say hook and loop fastener. That's what Velcro is. But don't, don't worry yourself about that, guys. Um, and so... You, you can include those different methods, you know, but you can also include very broad language. These two people, two, two components could be connected with any method, but then you could say, but the, you know, hook and loop faster could be used, um, thread could be used, but not limited to these methods. It could be connected with any method and you can kind of keep it broad. And again, I'm not sharing legal advice, guys, but I don't know if that's what Kelly was referring to. Um, Kevin said, hi, Andrew, when developing a health and safety product, is the onus on the inventor or company to make sure it passes all relevant criteria of health and safety regulations? Of course not. I mean, uh, a big company is going to handle that, you know, and some products will require it and some won't. I would take a look at um, different products. I mean, if it's a food product, obviously, they're going to have to pass some sort of regulations. Um, but take a look at other products in this space and see if there's any labeling on the package approved, FDA approved or something like that. But the company will let you know. But that's what they do. You're not going to have to do that. Now, if they present a problem to you and say, look, this is going to be a problem. I don't think we're going to get past because of this or that. Then you go, oh, thank you for presenting the problem. I'm going to think on that. Come up with a solution. So you always want to... Um, be very open with companies and say, hey, if you see any issues, let me know. Maybe I can solve them. You know, please let me know if you see any issues. So that's very, very important. Uh, wow. Thank you, Wade. Wade said, hi, Andrew. It's Wade and April Hawk. Thank you so much for doing these live Q&As. It's so 
of so much value. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we are new and wondering what you recommend an LLC sole proprietorship or uh, doing business as and why. Then at what point in time would you get one before or during negotiations? I love that. It sounds like you've already listened to my advice and you might already know what I'm going to say there. Um, you know, when you're licensing and you're working on your first product, um, you you have next to no liability, a very little liability. What is some company going to... Consumers are not buying your product. Is somebody going to slip and fall on your sell sheet? You know, and so, um, but it's really up to you guys. Again, this is not legal advice. Um, sometimes it's just like one more thing to do. And I've lived in Nevada, Henderson, Nevada for 13 years now, but I used to live in California. To file an LLC in California was 800 last time I checked. God, it's probably more now. Who knows? Because California, everything is just super expensive. Um, but it's just one more thing to do when you're trying to get up and run licensing products. And so what I'll say is we always, always, always insist that our students do not do a licensing deal under their own name, that they do it under an LLC or a corporation. And then always people in foreign countries always say, but I'm in another country, Andrew, I don't have that. And I'm like, just being in the foreign country is kind of almost the equivalent. Somebody going to go after you and sue you or something if you're in, say you're in Egypt or in Australia and somebody gets, the consumer gets hurt with your product. First off, they're going to sue anybody. They're going to sue the company, not you. But let's say they found out that you licensed to this company and you're in Australia. They're going to try to sue you in Australia. No, they're going to go for deep pockets. They're going to go for um, the company that you licensed to. So, but just to be safe, you always want to do the licensing agreement under an LLC or a corporation so that it's not under your own name. Now, I've never, ever had a student say, oh, the company that I licensed to, they got sued by a consumer. Like, I've never even heard that, let alone no suing an inventor. So, you know, you're protected every which way till Tuesday. And I've, I used to talk about this all the time I have, but I haven't talked about it in a while. So I'll go into it. Um, first off, if somebody's going to sue you um, for the use of the product, because we have students do ladders and knives and all sorts of different things that, you know, have liability issues, they're going to sue the company you, um, you license to. But that company is going to have a couple million dollars product liability insurance. And another thing, when you do a licensing agreement, you always want to insist that you're covered under their product liability insurance. So, and companies argue with us all the time about this with our students. And every time we're like, they're like, oh no, I, we can't do that. And, and we tell the student, go back to the company and say, look, it's not going to cost you a dime more. And they, then they go to their insurance agent and they go, oh, you're right. It doesn't cost us anything more anymore to put the inventor on the product liability insurance. So one, these are all your forms of protection. And this isn't specifically what you're asking, but this is one of the reasons why people file an LLC. Um, they don't know you exist. You know, there, there, I think there's like one company that put a picture of the inventor on the website, on their website. Um, and, you know, but you, your product, your face, it's not going to mention you on the package. So if they're going to go after somebody, they're going to go after the company. So one, they don't know you exist. Now, could they look you up and go, oh, this guy has a patent on this product, make the connection? Yeah, but why would they want to sue you? They want to go after the company. You don't have deep pockets, right? Um, but some of you might. So, and then two, um, you're, you need to insist in the, in the uh, licensing agreement that you're covered under their product liability insurance. And it's usually a million or $2 million. So one, they don't know you exist. Two, you're covered under their product liability insurance because you're going to insist on that. 
And, and then three, it's not your own personal name. It's an LLC or a corporation. If somebody sues you, it's just an empty LLC or a corporation, and they can't take your personal assets, at least in theory, okay? And again, this is not legal advice. So I've never even remotely had anything happen like this to any of our students in 21 years. Now, um, but we always insist when, when our negotiation coach is helping one of our students with, uh, with a deal, they, we say, he says, okay, it looks like it's getting close here. You need to file an LLC or a corporation. So the contract is under that LLC or corporation, not your personal name. And we, oh, do I have to do that? And we're like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And we, so we like to be conservative there. There's never, none of our students have ever had to use it that I'm aware of, but it could happen. So, um, but getting back to your question is when, you know, you could do it in the midst of a deal. You don't have to do it before. I mean, when you're licensing, you don't, you're not starting a business, you're not hiring employees, you don't have huge costs and expenses if you're doing it the invent right way. So it's not like you got all these write-offs anyway, right? But now if you did want write-offs and do, do something like that, you might want to do it sooner. But, um, you know, because we teach people to be so cost-effective, you're not, it probably cost you more to renew the LLC every year than you'd be saving until you license a product, you know? So um, you can do it in the midst of a deal. So that was a very specific question. Um, Wade, and I think I answered it. Um, Bob said, my wife has written 13 children's books that are self-published. She wants to license them as books with publishers. Does her copyright alone protect her in licensing? The copyrights are not registered. So copyrights are, they're automatic. So if you self-publish, Bob, you don't have to file a copyright for these books at the Library of Congress. You can, and I believe she can just take them all and file and pay one fee. But just by selling them in commerce and using them, I mean, when you give a speech, it's automatically copyrighted. When you write a book, it's automatically copyrighted. Just put the little C in the circle around. And I believe, don't quote me on this, that even if you don't, you could say, no, that's copyrighted. But put the little C in the circle around it. Um, so, yeah, she could, she could license it to a publishing company. Authors licensing, it is a licensing deal, but that's the that's the one of the few exceptions that we make. We are not your, if you say, oh, my wife wants to join InventRight and you'll help guide her on doing licensing 13 children's books. No. I mean, a lot of the stuff we apply, we teach to licensed products would apply to children's books, but the publishing world's kind of different. And there's some books written on that. On And what I'll tell you is my brother is a very successful publisher and he publishes very specific books. He's done very well for himself um, and he treats his authors right. But I'm going to tell you, a lot of publishers don't. You got to be really careful, which is maybe the one of the reasons why your wife is self-publishing. They'll typically issue like 5,000 books. And if it doesn't sell well, they'll keep the rights. They won't give them back to you and they'll never make another book. And now you're screwed. That's the way it can go. And that's the way it often goes. When you're self-publishing, you have control over it. Also, a lot of publishers don't put, they put next to no money into, um, into promoting these books. It's not like, a, and, and now my brother does, but he also looks for authors that are already very popular and have a large following as well. And he treats his authors right, but he would never take on any publisher that didn't have a following because he's doing like, diet books and he was doing mixed martial arts books back in the day. Now he's doing like keto and paleo. That's not diet I eat, but um, I'm a pescatarian, but he's just uh, keto and paleo books and other um, books and some books like that. And he's done very well. But um, 
he insists that they have an audience. Now, your wife, you know, children's books, I, you know, it's not quite the same because it's children. So, but make sure you really get screwed with these big publishers a lot of the time is what I'm saying. Find the right publisher, be crystal clear on what they're willing to commit to and your ability to get the book back, which is, you know, we always teach our, our students for licensing products. There's minimum guarantees in many other clauses. If they don't perform, you can always take it back. You're never selling your idea. You're renting or leasing it. Now, that's not the way most of these publishing contracts work. You, you, you license it to them and they do it and they just keep it forever. And it doesn't matter if they never publish another one. I don't like that. So be very careful, Bob, about doing that. Um, and also, you know, look into maybe possibly, I know it's weird because we're all about licensing, but trying to do some things or a better job of marketing the children's books or getting distribution. Um, maybe you just get a distributor instead of the publisher that will distribute your books, you know, something like that. So, but I would not join InventRight if you... If one of you had some books and you're licensing physical products as well, I think a lot of the stuff we teach could apply to licensing a book. But I if that's all you have, I would not sign up with InventRight just to do books because there are people that specialize. That's one little area. People just do books. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. Kathy, would a company ever insist on exclusive licensing? My idea is kind of obscure and would want to license it to more than one company. Not only would a company insist, but that's what's going to happen most of the time. Um, now, yours is a little different if it's an obscure product. But here's the deal. A lot of others think like, well, I'm going to license this around the world. I'm going to license it to five companies in the U.S. Most of the time, you're not. I'm going to be honest with you. Now, I have plenty of students that come on board and I'm like, whoo, yeah, you could slice this up. You could license to these guys over here and you could do a different version over here. And, and I see products like that. So don't get me wrong. But you're not going to license, here's the rule, to two companies selling in the exact same store that are stepping on each other's toes. I don't know, if, I don't know why that's stepping on each other's toes. I have no idea why I did that. But I always do that when I say stepping on each other's toes. But that doesn't make sense. Like you're licensing a, an oil pan for changing your the oil in your car. And you're going to sell that, license that to a company and they're both two companies and they're both going to sell in Walmart and AutoZone. That makes no sense whatsoever. You're not giving one a leg up over the other. Okay. Now, but you can break things out. You can break it out geographically wise. Maybe there's a high and low price version and the company that's selling the low price version could care less if you license that high price version. They're like, oh, that's, and you're going to be selling a different place, it's a different version. We don't care, um, or for a different market. Right? So it can make sense. But don't think you're going to make more money by licensing to five companies the exact same thing. Because when you license to a really big company, they're really big guys. Maybe for them, selling 20,000, 50,000, half a million units a year is normal for them because that's what they do. So don't be greedy and think like, I can license this. And I know Steven's done some videos on this. There's always exceptions. So it's not black and white. Um, our, my other, our other co-founders done some videos on this recently, which I, I just saw the title. I haven't even watched them. Um, but because we don't always watch each other's videos because we're pretty busy. But usually licensing to one big company is really good. Now, let's address what... Um, what Kathy said, my idea is kind of obscure and would want to license it to more than one company. Um, it could make sense. 
it could make sense for your particular product. But here's the deal. If it's really obscure and it's not to sell decent volume, you're probably not going to be happy with those royalty checks anyway. I mean, if a company is selling 200,000 units and let's say it's selling for $29.95 um, and that's great for a particular product. But let's say there's another product over here and it's for people that I came up with this example like eons ago. I have no I don't hunt, but for people that like to hunt and skin aardvarks and it's a skinning knife. For people that like to hunt and skin aardvarks, how many of those do you think are going to sell per year? I don't, I, that's just a silly thing to say, guys. I'm not advocating hunting and skinning aardvarks. But so let's say you say they sell 200 a year. Your royalty checks aren't going to be anything. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous. The, the point of licensing is that there's significant volume. And so there's three things when you're earning royalties. There's a royalty rate, which is what everybody thinks is about. It's not. It's, it's relevant. But it's the royalty rate and the price of the product. Is it a 99 cent product? Is it a $500 product? And then the volume being sold. Those are the three numbers. Royalty rate, price of the product, $0.99, cent, $500 product. Pretty big difference there, right? And how many units are they selling? Are they selling 1,000 units a year? Are they selling 20,000? Are they selling half a million? And those are the things. So, Kathy, um, maybe you just, hey, you're getting new, you're new to this and it's a fun product. And, you know, it's even though it's very niche and obscure, you're like, ah, I'm okay with not earning much royalties on this thing. I'm just having fun. I'm learning licensing license this company. But if the companies, I don't care how obscure it is, if the two companies are going to be stepping on each other's toes, it doesn't make any sense. Well, you licensed that to me and now they're selling it. Now I'm competing with them. That, that makes no sense. Okay. Now there are angles in which it can make sense. And, you know, I would need to go in specific scenarios with that in order to get into it. So, but you got to ask yourself, should you even be licensing this thing if it's that niche, right? And I talk to people all the time. They're like, oh, I think it's too niche. And you're like, like I thought, I thought this thing was fairly niche. It's not. The, you know, he's making like serious money off this thing. Serious, serious money. So um, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Let's see what else we got here. We got some more questions. Let's try to get to some that I haven't answered, and then I'll jump back. I want to try to answer at least one from everybody. Uh, uh, Las Vegas Asphalt Cowboy 68. That's their handle. <laughs> um, hello, Andrew. I'm interested in to see the reaction of Latin American community when you translate your videos. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, we had um, Judy, who doesn't work with us anymore. She was fluent in Spanish and she was one of our coaches. And um, she actually grew up in Texas. But her parents, one or both of them, like one was from Peru and one was from somewhere else. But I, I'd asked some of her students when she was coaching them, our native uh, Spanish speakers that were more comfortable speaking Spanish. Um, and they said, oh, her like Spanish was like textbook perfect. She said she had no accent, couldn't identify where she was, but it was textbook perfect. Um, our negotiation coach, Paul, we, he speaks Spanish. So we do have one coach that speaks Spanish. So that wasn't your question. Um but I think with YouTube, you can you can do the closed captioning. I haven't checked, so I don't remember on this. You can turn on closed captioning. So some people like, like sometimes I'll be on my phone and I'll be watching a YouTube video, but my daughter's like watching cartoons or something. And we don't let her watch. She's nine and a half much um, TV. But and I'll, I'll be reading the, the, the closed captions. Right. And it's pretty accurate most of the time. But I forget if it can actually translate another language. I don't remember if somebody wants to type that in. Um, I think people might be able to um, 
do the 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 cap, closed captioning in another language. I'm not sure. I, I believe so. I believe you can do that, but I could be wrong. Let guys correct me if I'm wrong or test it out on this video. Click below and closed captioning. You get all messed up and you're like, I don't know how to fix this. Um, so, uh, you know, we've had a fair amount of students from Latin America. Uh, I would say more students from Europe, Canada, and Australia. I really like to see more from Latin America. Um, I don't know why, um, but we've had students in over 65 countries. So, um, but when we take on students and coach them, we, we do require, you know, usually the Spanish speaking students we take on are, they're just more comfortable in Spanish. They'll speak Spanish and English. But if somebody didn't speak a lick of, of English, I'd be really kind of worried about that, them being a student. We probably wouldn't let them be a student. They need to have some English because not everything is in Spanish. Um, I mean, not everything, you know, your coach can talk in Spanish, but all our videos aren't going to be in Spanish for, for our training videos inside our membership site. But yeah, I, I would really like to see more people in Latin America licensing products because licensing isn't specific to where you live. You can license from anywhere. You could be in Mexico. You could be in Peru. You could be in Europe. You could be in Asia. You can be anywhere and you can license products. So I would like more people around the world to know that licensing is an option, especially in countries where they don't have as much money. So they're like, oh, I can't afford to do that. I can't buy it. I can't do a patent. I can't pay for a prototype. Um, and I'm like, great, you don't need to with our approach. And oh, well, they wouldn't take me seriously. Yeah, they do. Our, we've had students all over the world and they take you just as seriously as long as you take it seriously and you present a good sell sheet and you did your research and you made your hit list of companies and you know, you're conducting yourself professionally. You can do this from anywhere. And you could do it on a very, very tight budget. So I would love to see more students of ours uh, around the world. So uh, sorry I rambled so much on that. Um, Tommy said, do I really need a provisional patent when I go to a company if it doesn't truly protect my idea? I would just like to know more about the purpose of a provisional patent. So yeah, I'll keep it really simple. A provisional patent is a placeholder. It's a provisional, first of all, it's not a provisional patent. Patent attorneys, even though Steve and I beat them up quite a bit, they're absolutely right on this. They're like, it's not a patent, Andrew. I'm like, yeah, they say it's a provisional patent application. Okay, it's not a patent. Patent office didn't even look at it. You file it. So let's say I file it today. A year from today, for, during that entire year, you can say patent pending. You don't have to say patent pending, um, provisional patent pending. You just legally say patent pending, which is great. So the purpose of it, Tommy, is to create the perception of protection. A provisional patent does not protect you. If you don't file, it protects you. But if you don't file later a utility, full utility patent and reference that provisional within that year, you won't get that original date from that original provisional patent. So what's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is it gives you protection because you can fish off the pier for an entire year. And you, our students would never need that, our students, because they know what they're doing. And you see if there's interest. And you're only spending $75 on a provisional patent. And if there's interest, get the company to give you the money. And then you give that to your attorney and you file a full utility and you reference the provisional. So it's a way to work on unlimited projects and ideas without spending 10 grand on a patent every time, which is just freaking stupid, you know, and don't do that guys. And that's what a lot of people do. Well, I got an idea and you tell uncle Joe, and this is a compliment by the way, when your friends and family say, you better get a patent on that. 
what they're saying is that's a great idea. You better protect it. I'm worried you're going to rip it off. And so it's flattering. You should be flattered. But don't take the advice because what because it's stupid. Because every time you get a, a an idea, you spend 10 grand or 12 grand on a patent, or even if you get it cheaper for eight grand or whatever, um, you're not going to be able to go on the next idea and the next idea. And a lot of times when you approach companies, you need to make changes. So you spend eight grand on a patent. This would be idiocy. Sit around waiting for a couple of years for its issue. Then you work on it. And then you realize companies like, well, we kind of like this, but this is a problem. And you're like, oh, I can fix that. Oh, crap. It's not covered under my patent. Now I got to file another one. No, you file a provisional. But just file a provisional from the get-go. So it gives you protection in a way that you have a placeholder in time, a stake in the sand. So if you later file, you're protected. And it creates an aura of professionalism, too. So that's the purpose. Um, most of you probably already know that. I think Tommy's new. So and I, I bet a bunch of you, other others of you are as well. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, uh, Israel Crown, thanks, thanks for helping. You're welcome. Um, Dave said, hi, Andrew. If you have a few products in the same category, would you send all sell, sheet, sell sheets and videos and let the company pick which ones they would want to pursue. Absolutely not. And But yes as well. So what's the answer, Andrew? Um, so the answer is, you know, first of all, it's fantastic that you got a bunch of ideas in one category. Because let's say you work on project number one and you approach 30 companies, right? And then for project number two, you look at it and you're like, going, you know, 20 of these 30 companies would be right for project number two because it's in the same category. Well, now what you've done with project number one is you've made the relationship by sending a product to a company and them saying, no, you got their contact info, their name, their email. And you say, are you open to more ideas? And 95% of if they saw the first one, they'll say, sure. And then you can send them more ideas. Okay. So you're making the relationship with the first one. Now, after you send the first one, then you, and then they say no to a particular one. And you say, you know, I've got about three more that I think would be right for you. Can I send those to you? then do that. But do not find a company and then send them five ideas when you haven't sent them one first and you haven't asked permission to send five ideas, for example. And always ask permission to send the first one as well. So my answer to your question is yes, yes and no. Um, make the relationship with the first product and then ask them if it's okay to send multiple and when you do, if they're really nicely done sell sheets and you can get each one in six to 10 seconds or videos, that's fine. No long, no long. I've seen emails from inventors like, here's my 10 ideas and it's long rambling emails. Don't ever do that. That will get you absolutely nowhere. Okay. Um, all right. So let's see. So I love that question. That was a great question. Um uh, that's an interesting question. Garfield said, hey, Andrew, should I include my sell sheet in my PPA? You know, there are no more formal requirements for a provisional patent application. So you could scribble on a piece of paper with a crayon and they would accept it. Is that a good idea? Absolutely not. So you can, you know, I think it's really a good idea to include line drawings in your provisional patent, but you can include pictures. You know, you could take pictures and include them in your provisional patent. So that could be a sell sheet. You know, you could put a sell sheet. And I've seen people do that. Um, but what you're doing is, you know, you really kind of want to avoid marketing in a provisional patent application. It's about, you know, 
when you do a sell sheet or a video sell sheet, it's all about helping them understand your product very quickly and showing them how they can market it. And writing a provisional patent or a patent is really kind of like, it's okay for it to be boring and drab as long as you cover all that stuff, right? So you want to cover your version and you want to cover the other versions as well. So you might include the picture that's in your sell sheet, but I probably off the top of my head would not include the sell sheet, but you might include pictures from it. And then, you know, and if there was any things calling out, this is how this works or that works. So it's okay to be boring with a provisional patent and cover all those variations. That's the most important thing you would do with a provisional is cover the variations of your product. And a lot of inventors, like if you've been thinking about invention for a while, the longer you're thinking about it, the more you lose your creativity. And I've seen this over the last 21 years of been doing InventRight. You know, hyper-creative inventor, they can invent other stuff, but it becomes fixed in your brain. You've been thinking about it for five years, two years, whatever, sometimes two months and people become fixed, usually not two months. And, and that's fine if you study the marketplace and that's what you want to sell and license. But when it comes to the PPA, you need to think outside the box. This is the version you're licensing for the sell sheet, but you want to think about all the variations, workarounds, and improvements and include those in the PPA. And that can be kind of dull and boring as long as you're including it. It's not a marketing piece. Um, so there would be nothing to preclude you from including a sell sheet in a PPA because there literally are no rules as far as what they will accept. But what is a good idea is another thing. And for those of you that have never filed one, a provisional patent can be written in common English. You don't have to do, if you ever looked at a patent, it's like, what the hell am I reading? It's some sort of foreign language. But a provisional patents are written in common English. So I just want to say that so you guys know that anybody can do it. Um, let's see. I want to try to get to some people I haven't uh, got to. Radu, hi, Andrew. Can you give any general advice about inventing in the kitchen cookware domain? Any tips for that market specifically? Well, it's a great market. What I like about it is that there's a lot of companies. And there's a lot of products and there's a lot of opportunity. And, you know, people are always looking for new things for their kitchen because not everybody cooks. Some people eat out every meal, but most people cook. So, you know, cutting boards and garlic presses and pizza rollers and things that store your, your cutlery and just like it's endless, you know, for um, these products. So I like that there's a lot of products. I like that people are always looking for something new. Also, a lot of the products are under 20 bucks. So it's, you know, it's people will just pick it up. And God knows most of us, at least here in the U.S., we have all sorts of tools and gadgets and stuff we bought that are sitting in our kitchen drawers not being used. We're always looking for that next better solution because it's something that a lot of us do every day, which is cook. OK, so um, I just think my general advice, I think it's a good category. Uh, uh, Sylvia and Dana. Uh, two of our employees just were at the houseware show. I haven't even talked to them since they got back. They were there this weekend. And um, that's the show. That's the big trade show. So you could go there. And I don't know if they're doing this this year. Somebody told me you can't. Usually you can get a list of the companies that are at the, the um, these trade shows sometimes without actually going or even registering. You know, So you might do that. But um, really study the category, though. Like, So if you're doing kitchen cutting boards or if you're doing pizza cutters, there's a lot of stuff in this space. So make sure my advice is 
like let's say you're doing pizza cutters you go okay there's like eight over here and there's some here and some here and you kind of like start to categorize them based on the types of benefits prices price ranges quality levels things like that and you bookmark that on your browser and then you go does mine fit in and do i need to change something before i start to pitch it so because it's a very crowded space there's a lot of stuff there um i guess my advice is don't reinvent something that exists but if you reinvent something that well don't reinvent the exact same thing but slight variations can be enough in that category in kitchen it doesn't have to be mind-blowing it could just be like these five pizza cutters are more or less all the same these companies are just selling more of the same thing but you give it a little tweak and the consumer would want to buy your pizza cutter over somebody else's because it's got this cool storage device or safety thing or whatever it is so my advice is which is the advice always Study the micro category of your invention. If it's pizza cutters, you should know every freaking pizza cutter out there using Google Images, using Amazon. If it's a kitchen cutting board, you should know all those kitchen cutting boards. That's kind of a broader category. But um, so that's my advice. Hopefully that's helpful. Radu. Um, let's see. I don't think I Dynamo. I don't think uh, I got one. I answered a question for you. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for doing these live Q&As, very grateful. Question, is it possible to PPA an idea for a website? It could be huge global value, but it would rather license than pursue it myself. So with licensing, the whole point of licensing is you're tapping into what's already there. So if a company's selling dog toys, they have 80 dog toys and you have a new dog toy, makes sense for them, right? Company selling kitchen cutting boards, you know, and they're selling other stuff in that space makes sense for them, right? And they already have distribution in 30,000 stores. Licensing is not right for saying you should start this new business. Hey, start this whole new, you know, I hate Facebook by the way, but you're not gonna be like, you're not gonna license a new cop, a new version of Facebook. Nah, -uh. you know, you could license a Facebook app, you know, because that's smaller. But if, so if you try to create a whole new business model, that's probably not gonna work for licensing. Now, if your, if your product can fit in with existing businesses. So you say, you know, you are trying to create this website. Yeah, it's an idea for a website. So ask yourself, which I've talked to people for websites, could what I'm doing here fit in with people that are already have a distribution doing something somewhat similar, you know, and something kind of in that space? Could it be a modification to what they're doing now? Could it be an add-on, something extra they're selling? Could it tape? Does it taper in with their existing distribution? That's the key. Existing distribution. So if it's an entirely new business and you can't tap into existing distribution. Now, I've, always, I've, I've talked to many people over time where they they don't think and I'm like, oh, no, you could you would look here and you would look there. So be be smart about it and really think about it. Um, but licensing is not good for trying to run around telling people they should start an entirely new business. You know, um, it's plugging into what they're doing on the simplest level. And it can get more complex. They're doing pet toys. They're doing automotive products. They're doing tools. You're going to give them a new tool. Great. We got the distribution already at Home Depot or wherever else, you know, the staff on tool truck or whatever. So for the most part, you want to tap into what's already there. And sometimes it's you're like, oh, crap, that's not what mine is. But you think about it and you can figure it out and maybe modify things. So um, I can't say Dynamo. It might be right 
your product might be right. Your new website concept might be right, but I don't know. I think I gave you some criteria. I think you could probably figure it out. Uh, let's see. I don't think I did one from Derek. I'm trying to do people be fair. Cause I only got eight minutes left here. Hey, Andrew, thanks for doing these live Q and A's. Very grateful question. Is it possible? Okay. Oh, sorry. I already did that one. Um, Derek said, I'm negotiating a deal right now. Oh, cool. And the company is scared of economic decline. That's bullshit. Uh, so they're saying they will not give minimum guarantees. Bullshit. Um, how they're, however, they're doing everything else. What do you think? You know, companies will give every reason under the sun not to give you minimum guarantees. And we hold strong on that. If every time our negotiation coach had a student of ours where the company said, no, we won't do minimum guarantees. And we're like, okay. So what minimum guarantee is, is it's a fraction of what you know they can really sell, but they need to pay you a minimum amount every quarter, every three months, regardless of what they sell. So let's say the minimum guarantee was um, 10,000 units for a three month period and they sold 8,000. Well, they would still need to pay you 10,000. Okay. Now there are alternatives, which I won't get into here. I don't want to just throw these things out here and then you guys are like using these techniques because they can really mess you up. There are alternatives to minimum guarantees that you can use that they, this company might accept. So, Derek, I, I really think you would benefit tremendously from our negotiation coach helping you out. Um, if you want to book an appointment to talk to me, you can um, just call the main number and say I was Andrew's YouTube show and he said he wanted to talk and I'll 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 tell you how we can help. But I think you need some help with negotiating this deal. And there are alternatives when they when they but that whole like, I don't know, I can. Well, if they're going to launch the product, like sometimes the minimum guarantees, if they aren't selling that much, they're going to want to give it back to you anyway. So it's just BS, you know, and saying we don't know it's uncertain economic times. It's just a bunch of BS excuses they're giving you. And we help our students out with that all the time. So that's but but good on you for getting interest. Um, <laughs> Teresa said, "Is someone going to slip on fall on your sell sheet?" Yes, yeah, like you know, I've I've never had one of our students get sued by a consumer um, for getting hurt with a product because I gave you all the reasons at the top. If you want to go back and watch the replay, I gave the reasons why. I really don't think you guys should be concerned about that if you follow the rules that I gave you at the beginning of this Q&A. And if you guys are late, you can go back and watch the replay. Um, Mike said, hi, Andrew, thanks for everything uh, you do for us. I've sent my video to a few companies. I got a couple no's, a couple interesting, and surprisingly enough, a few asking if, they, if I have any in stock. Yeah, um, does that mean they want me to be a distributor? No. So sometimes companies get confused, and it's not a, necessarily a bad thing. They're like, do you have some you can give us? We can try to sell it. It's like, no, I'm looking. You just need to be very clear at that point. You're looking to license it to them. And if they're like, oh, well, no, I don't know. Why don't you make 500 units and give it to us? And then they're not really interested. Come on. I mean, these are big companies. If they can't license it and, and do that. Um, but I think quite often why that happens is – they don't understand you are not clear enough that your goal is to license this. And you just say, 
No, I, I'm not selling. I don't want to sell them to you. I'm not manufacturing them. I'm looking to license this. I'm a product developer and I license and develop products and companies license them and pay me a small royalty per unit. And then as you make money, I would get paid that small royalty. And so um, any company that says, make me some, and then I'll think about it, they're not really interested. Okay. Um, but Mike, that may not at all be what you're talking about with that one company. Um, they may just not be clear you're looking to license it. Make it clear, explain it to them. And then, then if they're interested, great. And if they're not, that's fine as well. It's flattering. I've had students over the years that they're so flattered that the company wants to buy 100 from them that they start to want to go that direction. And I'm like, oh, God, no, don't, don't do that to yourself. I mean, to get 100 made would be extremely expensive. And then you might give them a, you might do that. And they're like, I oh, know, I changed my mind. I don't even want to buy those 100. But they buy those 100. Where are you? Then you, you've spent God knows how much on an injection mold and all this stuff that doesn't show sincere interest. Okay. But then people are like, well, they said they would buy 100 and they're so flattered by it. But does that make sense for you to spend tens of thousands of dollars to sell 100 to them so they can test it out? You know, that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and it shows they aren't really interested in the product that much. Um, and then I bet a lot of them that said that wouldn't actually do it if you gave it to them. But also sometimes another reason why that happens, it's a good question, Mike, is you think you're contacting the manufacturer, but, you, but you're but you really contacting a distributor for a manufacturer. So you got to go a little deeper and hit the manufacturer and the brand and not a company that's just distributing for them. Sometimes there's companies that are distributors and that's why they ask that. And I get students confused on that as well. So that's another thing that can happen. Um, I don't know. Joe, well, okay. I don't know how serious I can take and take because this person's name is Joe Biden. Um, I've been trying to connect with companies on the InventRight site, but the ones uh, I've contacted, or at least some of them on the website, emails or even website don't work. Why is that? I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know your name. I don't know if you're a student. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, to uh, how do you forecast the potential in profit from license versus self enterprise? Oh, okay, that's a good question. Um, so one of the best things you can do when you're trying, if if you let's say you're like, I want to sell it myself, and even if you had zero desire to do that, I think trying to license it would be great. Because you're going to get feedback from when you're licensing, they're all your potential partners. When you're venturing, selling yourself, they're all your potential competitors. So you're getting into competitors and they're telling you what they like and don't like about it. You could make tweaks if your only goal was to sell it yourself. Um, so, But you're asking more about the potential profit of it. When you get a licensing deal on the table, you do those three things I talked about. You, you go, what kind of royalty rate can I get? Um, you go, what's the price of the product? And what kind of volume they can sell? These companies, most of them, can sell huge volume. So some people falsely go, well, why would I want to get a 5 or 8% royalty when I, I could get a 20% profit margin if I sell it myself? And I'm like, okay, well, that big company, they're selling 400,000 units a year. And let's say you're getting a 5% royalty and you run the numbers, you're like, oh, crap, that's a lot of money. And then you do it yourself. You got to quit your day job. 
all your hours. I mean, if you're running a business and launching a product, if you're not spending at least 60 hours a week, you're going to fail. You're going to need this isn't this isn't a job. It's a business. And so, you know, then let's say you're working really hard. Retailers don't like one SKU, one product companies. They just don't. They will, most won't even buy from you, but they'll buy from that large company. So let's say you're a buyer at Bed Bath & Beyond and this vendor who you already know comes in and they got 10 products in the store already and they go, here's another one. And they want to deal with you because you're going to deliver on time because you're going to have good pricing and you're reliable. And if you come in there as a one product vendor, they don't want to deal with you because just imagine if they have 50,000 products and every product at a different vendor, they want to shoot themselves in the head. They couldn't manage that. OK, that doesn't mean you can't work tooth and nail to try to get in, but they will not take you very seriously with one product. And even if you do get in, they'll kick you to the curb pretty quick. I've had so many um, company people that have ventured tell me this. If you don't come up with a whole product line, then they're like, oh, but Andrew, I was just about this product. It's like you don't start a business to sell one product. If you don't have other products in that product line, if you're venturing and selling it yourself, you're going to be screwed. Um, we had some big companies come on that want a license and they said that they were doing individual products and they were a big company, but the, the retailers are saying, no, we want product lines. And now they're just doing product lines, whole lines, like whole line of pet, whole line of this, whole line of that. Um, so you selling 5,000 units a year, let's say you're getting going, uh, or 10,000 or 20,000 and you're getting a 20% profit margin, but you're working yourself into the ground. And you got to, this is your whole life. You know, you can't have a day job, can't have other income, your mortgage, your house and home, because it costs hundreds of thousands, if not more, just to get started venturing a product. People dramatic, and then you got to hire employees, deal with all that stuff. So if you really, you have to be, if you're going to venture your product, sell it yourself, you have to be more into running the business than the product itself. I'm going to say that again. You have to be really into running a business. Like I met this young guy and he was doing these unique volleyball nets. It was like a four, four-sided four volleyball net. It wasn't volleyball, but it was like a game. And he was young. He was like mid-20s. Man, this guy, he just really enjoyed running a business, right? A lot of you don't. If you're creative, you don't enjoy running a business. Now, he did. And that's more important than his product. Your excitement about your product is not enough to run a business. And I see so many inventors get into a business and go, oh, crap, this isn't what I wanted to do. But they they just look at what's right in front of them, which is like, oh, but this manufacturer can make, you know, thousand units for me to get started. It's like, what about the salesperson? What about the money? What about the cash flow? What about retailers not taking you seriously? So, you know, yeah, you can sell 5,000 units and get a 20% profit margin, maybe if you're, you know, using yourself as free labor or what have you. Um, or you can sell 400,000 units and they're getting, I'm not, these aren't exact numbers. I'm just giving you an idea. And for that big company, that's normal, and you're getting a 5% royalty. So what I'm saying is big companies can typically do way more volume than you could ever do and get it out in the market faster. And that's another point I'll make is first to market is more protection than any patent on the face of the planet. So when a big company goes first to market and they just get it out there hard and fast and they keep the pricing good, they crush the competition with their distribution. You're, you have your little business and you're making selling yourself. People can knock you off. And it's, it costs insane amount of money to defend a patent anyway. They can knock you off. And then the a company that knocks you off, everybody thinks that it's that company. And they don't even know you existed. So with a big company, you get first to market. You get way higher volume. Yeah, you might be earning less money per unit, but the volume is much higher. 
But if you're really passionate about running the business and not just about the product, there's nothing wrong with running a business. It's not what we teach. It's not what we guide people to do. I'm not going to say, oh, it's evil to run a business or something. Of course it's not. And I know a lot of people that have done it. And and some I've met a lot of people who are like, I don't want to do this anymore. Other people are like, I just do it. That's what I do. I, you know, I don't have any family life or any rec, you know recreation time or anything. And then I see some people that just like they really enjoy having employees, creating a corp corporate culture and all that sort of thing. But passion for your product is not enough to venture it ever. It is not. You have to have business skills or you need to have partners with business skills and you need to have a lot of freaking money. And they have unlimited money, these big companies for a product that sells well. So that's, man, I ramble on that one. Um, so Tua, that was that was your answer there. Um, we are four minutes past. Um, I didn't get, God, there's a bunch of other people I didn't get to here. I didn't get to at least one question. Um, so sorry, guys. But I got to get going. I got a bunch of stuff I got to get out. I want a full hour. So um, I want you guys to do me a favor. Um, I spent a whole hour for free answering your questions. If down below you could subscribe and click the notification button, that red subscribe button, and then watch more of our videos and give us the thumbs up. That would be great. I'd love to get to 80,000 viewers in, um, I don't know, like six or eight months from now. That would be great. I don't know if that's unrealistic, but with your guys' help, maybe you can do it. So the only one thing I'm asking, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Nothing happens. You're not going to get spam emails. We don't get your email and we don't spam people anyway. And so it's really asking next to nothing. And just like other YouTube content providers, I'm asking for you to subscribe. But I think when people do videos, that's one thing. But when people spend an hour answering your personal questions, and I will never get to them all, guys. If I didn't get to yours, answer, come in sooner because I'm going to do this next Monday, too. I've been doing it every Monday for a long time. Come in sooner. Don't be late. Come in sooner. And I answered at least one question for everybody that was in there earlier. And I will get to your question. So, And then you can check out um, all our free resources. You can go to inventright.com. We got a great free resources page in the upper right-hand corner. So check that out, inventright.com. And I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. We'll catch up with you next time. See you guys. Bye.